Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me as always is Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you doing, sir? Cannot complain, Ian. It's going to be a fun night. It is. It is. We are here, of course, for part two of our discussion of Steve Gorman's book, Hard to Handle. But, uh, you know, before we jump right into that, the uh, ever-moving, ever-evolving rumor mill surrounding the 2020 Black Crows tour uh, is still moving along. Uh, I would say what's the latest, but it's hard to even say by the time this comes out what the latest will be. Because, you know, as I said, it's moving along pretty quickly. What's your take on things so far? Well, I think we can put to bed the quote-unquote alleged rumor. I mean, if this thing doesn't happen, it's going to be one of the one of the great uh, swerves of all time. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal did their article, and they quote Pete Angelos in it, saying he's heard they signed a two year deal with Live Nation. Earlier today, as we record this, Dean Del Rey's "Let There Be Talk" dropped his interview with um, Gorman, and uh, if you haven't listened, go listen to it. It's required listening. Uh, he just does. Dean does a great job with him. It's a it's a really good interview, and Steve even you know talks about some stuff that's not in the book. But he said it's happening. Um, he said that he's been hearing about it well before Neil Casal died, and and so uh, it sounds like he was going back to like the beginning of the year. And he said, you know, from everything I know, it's happening. And uh, but he said I'm not a part of it. I've not been asked to be a part of it. And he said on there that Mark has not been asked to be a part of it or Sven. But he also said he hasn't spoken with Mark in a couple of years, so that may be speculation. But it's going to happen, and we're just—I think—basically now sitting around waiting to hear who's going to be in the band. And then I keep reading that there's that Live Nation is wanting to package them with another '90s band, and so that really—I uh, guess if you know if you're them, they're there to sell tickets and and, and make money. Uh, that may be good for them, but for the the people that like us who've really carried this band and, and you know and go see them you know multiple multiple times, I feel like if they get packaged with somebody like I don't know the Counting Crows or Blues Traveler or something like that, and you get like a seventy five minute set, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a bummer. Yeah, that would definitely be a bummer. I mean, first of all, you can't really package them with any uh, groups from the same time period that they emerged because they're nothing like them. And then I always found that, you know, I I understand on paper, it's a good idea. Hey, put these two really popular bands from, you know, X time period and it'll sell that many more tickets. But I've actually been put off from seeing some, uh, like double triple bill shows because of the other acts that are on it. You know, there's, there'll be the act I'm interested in and I have one, nothing to do with the other, so you know that could go the other way on people too. Well, and I don't think they're going—they're not tailoring this for you and I. You know, th- no, this, this, this definitely is, seems to be for the more casual uh, people. I don't think there's any way around that. I mean, they got to do what they got to do. Uh, but if we're not getting changing set list every night, I'll go to one show. 
you know, if but if we get, you know, this type of set list we're accustomed to, I mean, I plan on going to, to several shows for sure. And it would seem to me at this point that it's it would be silly not to cater to the longtime fans because that's the bulk of who's interested, you know, and uh, to try to cater to to try to recapture, you know, some people, some fringe people from years ago. It doesn't seem like the smarter move. But then what do I know? Uh, I tell you what I was thinking today, like what could they do to kind of move the needle a little bit? I came up with something. You tell me what you think. Sure. Do a co-headlining tour. But do it with Blackberry Smoke. See, that would make sense because they have a lot of uh, underground heat, so to speak, and they're really, uh, really talented. You know, right? They um, and, and they kind of cater to some of the same audience. There's a lot of carry carryover between the two the two bands, and they're friends. And you know, yeah. you could have some great jam sessions, you know, for encores, but. That's one of the things that I thought if you're going to have to package them with somebody, somebody like that. But, I mean, dude, if it's if it's some kind of like 90s nostalgia tour, it's like them and Bush or something like that. I mean, yeah. I mean, like as a longtime fan, I'm not interested in seeing them go out for, a, a, a you know, a, 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 an abbreviated set and, and do, you know, a lot of stuff from uh, Moneymaker. It's just not doesn't appeal to me. You know, right. I'm willing I'm and, and, and I'm willing to put aside, you know, OK, if they want to go out the two of them with a fresh new band, because that really seems to be the direction that this whole thing is going to be leaning in. I, I can I can get beyond that and, and give it a, an opportunity. What I don't like is would be catering to the uh, for lack of a better term, the lowest common denominator in the whole situation. Exactly. Exactly. And I keep you know, I predicted a couple of weeks ago that. Benji, Benji Shanks's name would start popping up, and I've started to see it in several places now as a possible second guitar. So um, I actually wouldn't mind that. I mean, if we're not going to get Mark or you know Luther, something's for sure happening. I, I think we can. I think we put to rest that it's a rumor. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, anybody that that is saying you know it's something isn't going to happen is is kind of. Uh, not paying attention to the facts here as far as I'm concerned, but, uh, you know, time will tell no pun intended. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll I'm sure we'll be seeing or hearing something more official shortly. My hope is that when they do announce it, at the very least, we can get rich on here. I'd always love to, uh, have a chat with rich. Cause, uh, you know, the, the guy's uh, phenomenal in my book as far as music goes. And, uh, I got a lot of things to talk about, so you know that'd be great one day. But you know, it's a shame. Ultimately, if if anybody was going to come back and uh, be a part of it, Steve would be the ultimate guy you you'd want to be a part of it. You know, but uh, I understand for multiple reasons why he's not involved with it, and uh, but he he'll be missed. But yeah, I mean, he's got a he's got a fantastic record out right now. I mean, I know you've uh, you picked it up and been listening, and I picked it up and was listening to the new trigger hippie i mean what are your thoughts on that one blew me away um i'll be honest with you the first one i just always viewed as a side project and not a band and that probably prevented me from enjoying it more than than i did but you know he started tweeting about this a couple of months ago and how uh how proud he was of it and you know it's him and nick from the original band and then uh amber woodhouse i believe is her name 
is mm-hmm. the uh, is the singer, and I've actually reached out her reached out to her trying to get her on here. And then uh, the other gentleman is from uh, a band called Band of Heathens. Uh, they play around here a good bit. You may have heard of them, kind of an Americana band. But yeah. I, I think this is like they're in this for the long haul. And one of the one of the great things about this album is it doesn't stick to one style. Uh, no, not at all. And, and songs, the, the song that really just blows me away is that song "Born to Be Blue." It's just got like a hypnotic, mesmerizing beat to it, and uh, I find myself going back to that one. And I uh, yesterday I uh, got the vinyl. I got it in Friday, but I didn't have a chance to listen to it. And I put the vinyl on. Man, it sounds really good on vinyl. Yeah, I really. haven't. Uh, I purchased it on uh, CD and uh, vinyl. Uh, I haven't had a chance to crack open the vinyl yet, but uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a great record. I, I loosely mentioned it on. Uh, the uh one of the facebook groups uh you know and uh, a lot of people were saying how they you know they they preferred the the original first album with joan osborne and jackie green and i feel like the the stuff that they're doing now really feels more of a uh cohesive kind of unit as opposed to just like a one-off like you had said or you know it feels more band-like and it feels more a little more genuine to me really well the the new vocalist i mean she's just amazing and I just never really enjoyed Joan Osborne's voice on that first album as much. I mean, I've enjoyed her stuff in the past. I tell you what, quick sto- funny story. I saw her before anyone knew who she was. I went to see Widespread Panic, and she was opening. And I just remember the last song she played was just really catchy, and it was something about God being one of us or something. And then, like, yeah. <laughs> like three months later, it's like the biggest song in the in the land. Uh, but now I have, I don't disrespect, uh, Joan Osborne's, uh, singing ability at all. I think she's got a great voice, but this Amber man, she just brings it. I mean, she brings it and, and it's just so good. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed what she was doing. And, uh, I, to me, seems like a, a virtually an unknown person. I don't know of any other, uh, stuff she's been involved with. If that's the case and no disrespect to her, but, um, and she's apparently great. a saxophonist as well. I, I discovered that. Yes. Oh, I hate to, it's weird to say this that uh, Steve Gorman is not the only Crows alumni that released an album Friday. The North Mississippi All Stars did uh, as well, and I know you've I think listened to it a little bit more than I have. Yeah, I gave it a a, a, a spin or two, and I really enjoyed it. I always like what Luther does. I think the guy's a, a unique talent that doesn't get uh, perhaps the recognition he deserves. You know in and out of the black crows and and so forth um a little bit of a different sound on that one uh they have a um a female vocalist uh on the album and pretty much on every track it's almost like a co-lead vocalist You can call back on. You can call back on. 
not what I was expecting, but you know, when you're popping in a, a North Mississippi All Stars uh, record, but it certainly was uh, certainly was good. Yeah, if Luther's anything, he's prolific. He's got all oh, these yeah. side projects, and and the All Stars are always out. And I think they're going to tour a lot. I interviewed Cody last year for my um, my other podcast, Digital Kill the Radio Star, cheap plug, and uh, they already had recorded it. And he was telling me they were really, really proud of it, and it was a little bit different from anything that they've done. So I tell you what, I'll give them credit for. They stray away from their roots without straying away from their roots, if that makes any sense. Like, they're still playing kind of the same kind of songs, but they're not scared to add stuff to it. Like, on the World Boogie is Coming album, you know, you had Robert Plant playing harmonica, and you had all these kind of different sounds to it. And then the last album, uh, I forget the name of it, something with Pete, uh, Pray for Peace or Prayer for Peace. They mm-hmm. kind of did some of the same things. And they're, they're, they're not scared to add things to a proven formula and, and try it. No, they're like I've always seen the North Mississippi All Stars is like a a soup that you keep throwing ingredients into, you know, and stirring it, you know, and it's still better and better each time. Uh, and you know, more credit to to Luther for doing that. It's a it's a fantastic sound, and he really is a great guitarist. I don't I don't care what anybody says. Uh, was he Mark Ford? No, but his contributions to the Black Crows, he fit what they were doing at the time and contributed some really nice stuff. And and I always try to support him, you know. I agree, and I was interviewing uh, Roger Stevens from Blind Melon, and uh, he we started talking about the North North Mississippi All Stars, and he was just like, he was just saying how impressed he was with Luther, and he's like, he blows me away every night, and Rogers is certainly no slouch on guitar. Yeah, definitely not. So, hey, Ian, before we get to the book, uh, want to thank everybody for uh, showing up in mass and downloading our last episode. It's by far our best first week downloads and uh, we hope we're not going to disappoint you with this one but thank you so very very much for uh, uh, listening and and the social media interaction is just getting more and more and we really appreciate that and also uh, our buddy brian jones who we told you about last week has the uh, facebook group all things blues and southern rock and he's wanting to start a podcast by that name uh, he uh, opened that Facebook group up now to where it's public, so you can just search for all things blues and Southern rock, and uh, and like his page and, and follow him. He posts on there a good bit, and uh, he's got a he's got a really good musical taste, and so hopefully he's going to get his podcast off the ground. But and speaking of of social media, we do have a Twitter at State of Amorca, and we have an Instagram page State of Amorca Podcast, and then Ian runs the Facebook page State of Amorca Podcast, and so. Uh, get plugged in on those. Um, in the upcoming weeks, we've got several things to give away, and we'll usually uh, somehow tie that to social media. So uh, everybody that showed up and downloaded, we really appreciate it. The response really, uh, really surprised us. And so um, we really appreciate that, and we hope we continue to grow like we are because uh, when we started this podcast, it was about a band that we none of us ever thought we were ever going to see play again. And uh, things are all things are pointing to where we were wrong on that assumption. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with David. I blown away by the uh, by the response this week, and and it's funny throughout the week. You know, David and I will text each other periodically. Oh man, it's up to this number now. Oh geez, it's up to this number, and it just kept going and going. So much so to the point where I think out of the sixteen we've done up to this point, that episode is clocking in at about you know four or five or something like that. And uh, it's just great. I, I, I can't thank you guys 
enough out there for supporting us and we hope you'll continue to support us and thank you for making me uh, extremely nervous as well because now when we go to record these things i've <laughs> a little more self-conscious this is more people listening but uh it's just great and, and and people that have been there from the beginning or people that are just jumping on and, and showing us all sorts of support uh it's just fantastic thanks so much and we hope we uh continue to entertain at the same level for you Mr. Gorman gave us a great book to talk about. So it's, yeah, I mean, originally our intention was for, for this was to do like one marathon episode and we were just going to, you know, cut it into two parts. But, uh, I was, uh, you know, the kid who didn't do his homework and, uh, you know, so it took me a little longer to get through the book. So, but now that I've, uh, I finally wrapped it up. Woo. What a, what a second half of the story here. Unbelievable. Um, I think we, we dropped off uh, last episode just at the tail end of uh, 97 when uh, Mark and Johnny were about to make their exit out of the band. And it doesn't uh, it doesn't get dull from there. That's uh, that's certainly uh, understating it a bit, I'm sure. It doesn't. And the, the passage where they're on the conference call and Johnny just resigns, what to me was one of the more opening things in the book just how this guy i hate to say this but i my opinion of him great bass player but my opinion of him of him always he was just kind of aloof and a little bit of an odd duck and it turns out the guy's got it together more than anybody and you know it had, had planned this exit and you know had gotten into yoga and like steve said on the dean del race podcast that he goes this guy was sober for that 96, 97 tour and stayed sober. And I think he was, he's been very, very smart with his money and invested it well and is a good business person. And the, the two people that I came away from this book, the most impressed with were Johnny Colt and Pete Angelos. Yeah. I mean, uh, my impression of Pete was definitely turned around a, a great deal. Cause you know, you, you kind of, you kind of get a certain idea about somebody and what they're doing behind the scenes, but you know, it, he definitely was different than I thought. And I had heard of Pete Angelus, you know, years prior because he did a lot of work with uh, David Lee Roth. Um, I was so much so that if you watch some of those early David Lee Roth videos, he's in them, you know, <laughs> sometimes made up and things. But Yeah, and he was like 22 or 23 at the time, I think. Yeah, but I mean, the, 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 the amount of stuff he did to keep the Black Rose together is unbelievable. And, and, and the, the positive things he was trying to do. You know, well, and like Steve said today, he said, you know, he was basically a member of the band. And Steve said one of the things that he didn't put in the book because he 
was scared. I think if he called Pete and asked him about this, Pete wouldn't want it in the book. Pete wrote all of them an individual five-page letter in like 96 or 97 and basically said, guys, you are blowing it. Here's what's going to happen. And Steve said, I go back and read that now, and he was 100% right on everything. That's the hardest thing about this read is just watching missed opportunity after missed opportunity after misguided attempts, you know, like, uh, you know, cause it, as it's happening and as a fan, you're watching it and you're just thinking, okay, this is what they're doing. And this, but when you, but when you see what went into it behind the scenes, it's, uh, it's amazing that they made it as long as they did. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, uh, I never realized how many, how many times, I mean, there was no way to realize it. It wasn't uh, publicly known, but how many times Steve was ready and willing to walk out the door on the band. If the if the Page Crows thing hadn't happened, you know, he that would have been it then for him. It seems like you know. Yeah, and you know he and and he and Colt had had this. Well, Colt told him he said, "If you go, I go." And so I mean, they were having discussions on it at least back to like ninety five or so, and. You know, he said today in that interview, I know, sorry, I keep referencing, but it was such a good interview that, uh, you know, he was shocked when Johnny finally pulled the trigger. Uh, and he's like, it's the same way Rich was with me. He said, I'd been telling Rich in 01 for months. I was leaving at the end of the tour. And when I finally did, you know, he was shocked. But yeah, I go back to that phone call, you know, they just, and the way Steve portrays it, the other guys in the band, when Johnny's like, all right, guys, I'm off, you know, the, the other guys were like, all right, and they just picked right up where they would have, you know, left off, and it just—I don't know—that some of that stuff really makes me sad for some of those guys, like Johnny, and and the thing with Mark about, you know, when they had kind of like a mini intervention, and you know, he says "I love you," and then Steve said that Chris said "I never told you I love you," like that just—that's man, that that's dark. It's it's very dark, and I'll tell you one thing about this book. Uh, you know, particularly around that that time period, is uh, I, I I really I was heartbroken for Mark because it seemed like Mark was in a much much worse way uh, in '97 than I even imagined he would be, and I really feel like uh, you know perhaps they did him a disservice in a way. Uh, but they, I mean, uh, you know, the, the the Robinson brothers, and um, you know perhaps they could have been a little more loving towards him and uh, it might have helped him uh down a different path you know but then again you know you don't know where everybody's head was at and and as steve himself you know takes uh, great care to point out this is just told from his perspective and somebody else telling the story might have a slightly different perspective so but it's kind of hard to ignore certain things don't you think it is and it you know the one of the overriding feeling i get when i when i think about this book is Obviously, for you and me, and for probably everybody listening to this podcast, this band means a lot to us, and has got us through good times, it's got us through bad times, it's it's allowed us to build friendships, uh, you know, and, and it's something that a lot of us have spent a lot of money and time on, and to think it brought so much joy to so many of us, and then it seems like the guys that it were bringing us the joy at times it was just utterly miserable. Yeah, I mean it's almost like uh you know if your if your parents were to get divorced or something and then you find out you know all those years all the things that were going on when you thought everything was hunky dory 
you know, it's uh, it's kind of shocking, you know, and uh, it's just crazy. Um, it really is. Because, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you're like me. You have in your head how your favorite band is, and then you come to find out it probably didn't go it didn't go down the way you thought it was. And, you know, people are a little bit different off stage than we thought. And, you know, in my head, it was just kind of like this big, like, communal group and, they did everything together and they're just kind of all sitting around stoned all the time and coming up with all this great music, you know, and late night on the bus, you know, the incense is burning and, you know, they're listening to these dead bootlegs and little <laughs> feet bootlegs. And then you find out that's not the way it really was. No, it's, uh, but you know, uh, you know, un- as unfortunate as it is for the, those involved in any band, not even necessarily just the black crows, but a lot of the best music and best art is born out of, frustration and and uh despair and and darker themes you know it seems like you know when they were at their least happy they produced their best stuff and that's it's sad from a human standpoint but uh you know it's it seems to be a lot of a lot of bands were like that i mean you know you can reference any number of the classic bands and and they probably have a similar tale to tell in that regard you know it's weird to think how much art suffers at times when everybody gets sober and everybody's happy. It, it seems like a lot of people, they sober up the, the music suffers or they get it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we did have Katie Deer was written. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That's people true. Were in a good place. <laughs> Some songs on that album. I really like, that's not one of them, but you know, it's just kind of odd how that works, and it seems kind of unfortunate because it's almost like you're rooting for your your heroes to be uh, upset and uh, you know maybe partake a little more than they should. You never can tell really what's 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 going on, and and uh, as this book definitely details, uh, you know, because where we left them, uh, you know, Johnny's heading out the door, Mark's uh, being asked to leave, and everybody's kind of in a in a down way and then you know the story is at the time uh you know steve bumps into sven in a in a uh, a community park near his house and that's how sven ends up getting back into the fold you know and uh so then we go into the an era of the band that we've uh, yet to address on an individual episode but we will be uh shortly down the road but we go into the uh the by your side era where the band essentially becomes a five piece for a short amount of time. I thought this was the most surprisingly interesting part of the book to me. Yes, absolutely. It, it makes me view this album in a completely different light. It absolutely sheds some light on why certain things are how they were on that album. And honestly, when you put everything together, you realize they were almost backed into a corner and didn't have a choice on this. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rick Rubin sells his his uh, his label partly, you know, partly, partly because the Crows albums were selling so bad. Right. I mean, I, I mean, it, in fairness to the Crows, in that respect, a lot of the artists that he chose to uh, back, you know, weren't uh, giving him adequate returns, but. Uh, so he partners up with Columbia, and that's where all these executives come into the picture. And, you know, it seems like right out of the gate, these guys wanted them to take a 
you know, a step backwards to their more commercially viable period. It, it's kind of sad in a way because it seems like they were behind them a bit at first and then slowly kind of withdrew their interest. And But like you said, it, it's very it's a very surprising period because of how tuned in the band was to making that album and how how cohesive a unit they were at that time, which is so bizarre to me. And it seems like they really enjoyed the process of making By Your Side. You know, I think yeah, I, mean, I, I think they were a little disappointed because they did play the band for Columbia, and you know, and they there's not a there's not a vi- there's not really a viable radio hit there, and also the the band the label was basically wanting them to make Shake Your Money Maker again. Yeah, and I mean, from a, an executive standpoint, that's what would they be looking for because that was their most right. lucrative period commercially, and that's where the most casual of listeners knows them from is those hits from that first album right because that's that's ultimately what fm still leans on to this day i mean you'd be hard pressed to hear something on fm that goes after 1992 Uh, and that's just that's you know maybe the odd thing here and there but now i'll I'll admit though i do hear songs off by your side every now and then kicking my heart around and uh go faster and then sometimes uh by your side the song but yeah, you're right. You know, the other stuff's considered classic rock now. Steve talks about that on that interview. He's like, I have a classic rock station. And Dean Del Rey's like, yeah, the 90s are classic rock now. And he goes, oh, yeah, we play we play Crows on there. <laughs> you know, but uh, that, that, you know, so they, they kind of backed into a corner. And I thought it was interesting in the book, basically, when like, it seems, according to him, when Chris realizes this is the only way to go, he goes all in on it. Yeah, and, he you know, just and this is you know where the pimp period, as I like to call it, comes out. You know where he starts dressing, you know, with the the hats with the feathers and the you know the bright clothes. And I mean, they go from they go from ninety six ninety seven to recording the band sessions. You know, and he, Steve talks about in the book. Chris shows up to a show with shorts and a Lakers jersey on. You know, and goes yeah. out on stage like that to you know go back and look at them on the Tonight Show on this tour. Um, you know, they were just in total flamboyant seventies, almost glam rock phase. And it, I thought it was interesting, basically how Chris like realized what the situation was in and there was no pushback. So he goes from wanting to be, you know, the crows to be like the dead to basically wanting to be like Bowie in the faces. Yeah. I mean, it was a complete, uh, 180 in a lot of respects, but that has a lot to do with the, the one, uh, executive, uh, uh I believe it was Don Iener. Um, who was pushing them to find a, a you know a a, a, a hit making producer, and that's how they end up with Kevin Shirley, who you know through the insistence of the label they ended up really enjoying working with him. I mean I remember there's one portion of the book where Kevin Shirley's kind of laying down the law with them and says, okay, we work from this time and I finish at six every day. Uh, you know we don't work past that and we don't do weekends and this and that. And they became they worked on a very more structured schedule and really, really took his advice and his uh, his uh, direction, you know, under uh, under extreme consideration. And I, it almost makes you feel worse for the band because they were so behind by your side, or at least behind the notion of okay, let's give this a fair shot, and they put everything into it, and you know, even. 
some of their most tried and true fans wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's one of those odd things, just like we all love 96, 97 so much, and it turns out other than Chris, nobody else in the band liked it. But he does talk at length about enjoying the process with Kevin Shirley, and they were just, it was so different from how they'd recorded. And I don't guess I fully realized until this book came out that that's Rich playing all the guitar parts, and Audley's not even on the album. You know, it's that's a trend that would continue through the next record as well. But it was something that, that you and I had touched on briefly, too, is uh, the reason why there's so much – we had talked about this on our B-Sides episode. The reason why this, this record has so many um, B-Sides to it is uh, – it's confirmed in the book – is the label wasn't – you know, they would bring the material back to the label and they still weren't finding, you know, uh, quote, that song. So they were continuously struggling to find – the next big hit and it's surprising to me because a lot of those songs are very radio friendly and uh hit worthy i guess they just i got a question though anybody's ability to pick songs to go on an album if they put go tell the congregation and diamond ring on there over peace anyway over uh you know grows a rose but uh i mean but so that, that album it kind of did what they wanted to do it you know he acted like it didn't sell that well, but I thought it was pretty popular when it came out. I remember I was in college, and uh, I was uh, um, I was working at this pharmacy, and I, I was their delivery guy. And so, you know, it was back in the day of just you know you had the radio and the, the radio station. They used to he, they played all four of those songs that were the singles all the time. In my head, I thought it was a, a pretty a pretty good selling album, but Steve kind of acts like it was lackluster. I think. At at the very best, I couldn't. I tried to find the uh, the exact numbers before we we were recording tonight, but I couldn't come across them anywhere. Um, I think if it went gold, that would that was its maximum on that. I know it sold. The last time I had heard it, it sold somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand copies, if I'm not mistaken. I think because it had such a big label push behind it when it initially came out, it seemed bigger than it was. I think once it came out, it kind of faded a lot faster than it needed to to have that longevity to sell you know tons of records but it's a shame there are some great songs on that record i mean you know just not even b-sides wise just songs on that made the actual record i mean by your side itself is a fantastic song you know and uh virtue and vice is a great song i think and and uh i always like welcome to the good times but you know we I, you don't so <laughs> we always uh, we're divided on that one but uh, and don't even bring up go tell us the congregation. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> so yeah, so the, this album they they come out and they tour with it, and Steve is miserable, and he's um <laughs> he's gets to the point where he's ready to quit, and about the time he's ready to quit, they get a little bit of a phone call. That's from one Mister Jimmy Page, which would uh, really change the trajectory of the band for uh, a couple of years following i mean imagine you're a band i mean at the time they were 10 years 10 years in so you're a 10 year old band and the guy from led zeppelin is seeking you out you know what a what a trip that must be you know what i mean what and it starts off as a couple of shows and and uh so high on the uh creative uh prospect of the whole thing is mr jimmy page that he wants to wants to continue with them for a bit. And, yeah, it, uh, it really was a perfect marriage because they needed that the exposure, and I think maybe to some degree the legitimacy that he brought to it. And then 
you know, he had done that page and plant tour, which I actually, I actually, I caught the last show they played and, you know, he was done cause he, he put out that outrider, um, solo album, but really there was nothing after that, you know, he did the page plant tour, but then, you know, he's just kind of a hermit and they go out and they both are getting more exposure than they've had in a long time. They're playing, you know, on the tonight show on Conan O'Brien and, uh, uh, you caught some of those shows, didn't you? Uh, I did not, as a matter of oh, fact. Oh, I thought you did. Um, no, I uh, I had wanted to, and at the time, uh, you know, I was I was young enough where uh, I didn't have a lot of disposable cash, so I had to miss out on a lot of things at the time. And um, but yeah, they played. Uh, you know, one of the biggest circulating shows out there is the one from jones beach in fact the record store day release they did uh you know a year or two ago um from jimmy page and the black crows was a couple of songs recorded at that show yeah in the and, evening uh, and bring it home i think i have it yeah and that was right in my backyard and I, I missed out on that but uh yeah i mean it says the original intention was to do about six shows and uh luckily pete uh, if we can uh sing his praises one more time uh, had the foresight to record the ones at the Greek theater. Yeah. And I'm so glad he did because, um, I love that album. You were gracious enough to send me your copy on vinyl, but the, uh, remastered audio file versions coming out next week, getting back to that tour. One of the, my favorite stories on that is they're playing somewhere or they maybe at the, t- I, I forget where they're playing and Jimmy walks up to Steve and says, because uh, he had remarked at how, at how well Steve could take a nap before a show. And Steve's like, I can take a nap <laughs> in any situation. And he was like, you want to come down the hall and have a nap with me? And Steve's like, yeah, I do. You know, and he, I, I can just, he talks about how like they had their, the couch and, you know, there's two couches and they basically push the heads together like a, like an L shape and, and go take a nap. And I'm like, I mean, it'd be equivalent of me laying down and like Steve Gorman being next to me and we're going to take a nap. Like <laughs> what, like what was going through like 13 year old Steve Gorman's head, you know? Oh, it must've been unbelievable. And he and Jimmy seemed to just really hit it off. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned that Steve has told us he will come on the podcast and we're going to start working on that next week. But one of the things I want to ask him is I've often heard this rumor that in 08 had, for whatever reason, Jason Bonham couldn't do that show. And also when they were talking about, uh, he and John Paul Jones of going out and recording material with another singer. I've heard the rumor that if Jason Bonham didn't do it, that Steve was going to be the one that got the call. And based on this book, that doesn't seem far fetched. No, it really seems to me that Steve was the one that, uh, Jimmy page really took, took a kinship to or uh, you know a liking to and I, I mean how could you not steve's a very charming guy um but uh it also it's it's something that the black crows needed at that time it really put them back on the map in terms of i mean they were commercially faltering and i think it, the the whole thing really rejuvenated them and they were so willing to do it because they knew they needed something like that and it's it's a shame how it all how it all winds up, isn't it? It really is. That's the big thing that I had read about before I got the book was he teases something with Jimmy Page and he doesn't really come to the conclusion of it t- toward the end of the book. And I mean, I think I, like everybody else, that was the gut punch for me. 
you know, and, and it's such a shame given that like where it had put them because, um, which I didn't realize this happened twice in the Black Crow's history. I knew it happened once with Rick Rubin, but with the executives at Columbia, they also forgot to exercise their option on the band, and it left them as free agents one more time. And they could, you know, twice in their career, they were able to pretty much give the guys the finger and and go off with this renewed commercial interest and do what they wanted to do. But yeah, it's uh, it's unbelievable how that ended. I mean, so you know, for, for we, those that the the Cliff Notes version is for those that haven't read the book, um, they were had a, a tour booked basically with the Who, and but they weren't going to play on the same night. They were going to use the same crew and same stage, and the Who would play one night and they would play the next. And at some point when they were out in Hollywood, uh, Jimmy Page went to Rich and was like, "Hey, I've got these riffs laying around." why don't we put out an album, you know, and call it like Jimmy Page and the Black Crows. And Rich basically was like, no, we've got some songs we're ready to record and kind of blew it off. And I mean, in the book, Steve is yelling in the book because everything's in all caps. Uh, yeah. When he, when he finally found, and he didn't find that out to years and years later uh, when, you know, like he even talks about how he was Jimmy Page's guest at the reunion show, the Zeppelin reunion show. He and his wife flew over and were like sitting in Jimmy's seats and stuff. And so they were really close. And Jimmy, you know, it seems like was very gentlemanly about it. It was just like, well, you know, they, they don't need me and I'm just going to go off into the sunset. And then, you know, he tells Steve about it years later. And it, it doesn't sound like Steve's remotely gotten over it. No, and I don't – I understand why. I mean, aside from just like, hey, I'm playing with the guys – one of the guys from Led Zeppelin uh, – he really, it really seemed he 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 had developed a, a bond with Jimmy, and it really almost saved him in a way. You know, it kind of rejuvenated him, and he was excited about playing and excited about doing this. I mean, there's even a point in the book where he says, you know, if Jimmy had said, uh, you know, he wanted me to be his drummer, I would have flown right to London, no questions right. asked, and been Jimmy Page's drummer. You know, and it's it's sad, really, because even if it's it's one of those things, like, even if it's not something that you had thought about doing, if Jimmy Page comes to you and says, hey, uh, I got some riffs, maybe we can share them, or you can give me a co-writing credit, or I could produce a couple of tracks, or the whole album, or, I mean, he laid out all these things he was willing to do for them, and it's like, a guy of Jimmy Page's stature, whether you want to do it or not, you got to do it, right? And it, and it commercially would have made sense, and I understand why the man was insulted, you know? And, you know, it was that coupled with the fact that, I mean, Jimmy says in the book, you know, or relates to Chris, uh, Chris, relates to uh, Steve, you know, I, here I am with this really bad back problem, but I'm, I was willing to tough it out for everything that was going on. And then these guys tell me this. So it's like, well, what am I doing this for? What am I working through all this pain for? And it just it doesn't make sense to me anymore. You know? And you're 11 dates into a 55 day tour. And that's it. And and you had touched upon it before. It's a, uh, especially at the time, it was a brilliant idea. Two huge bands like that sharing a stage, cutting down on production costs. I mean, you know. And if you they did it, and as soon as I read it in the book, I remembered it at the time. Like, if you went and bought tickets to the you know Jimmy Page and the Black Crows, they'd give you a discount on the Who, or vice versa. You know, to to support this package idea, it was brilliant. And they and when the record came out. Um, if you remember, it was originally available online only, 
and you could get the whole thing, or you could actually go and cherry pick the tracks you wanted and make your own custom CD. I always wondered now, as I was reading it, if anybody's out there has an actual custom one, you know, just be interested to see what those look like and things like that. Because, you know, I, I bought every track, so I just got the, the standard. It's one of the set. great live albums of all time. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, my my relationship with Led Zeppelin is kind of uh, up and down over the years. So, you know, at the time, I, w- I wasn't in like a Led Zeppelin phase, so it didn't. Um, yeah, but I mean, you were getting to hear him play songs that they never played. I mean, he's playing like 10 Years Gone and Sick Again and stuff that maybe they played every now and then. But, you know, it wasn't Stairway to Heaven. It wasn't Black Dog. It wasn't Going to California. It wasn't When the Letter right. Breaks. These deep tracks, especially a lot of tracks from Fizzle Graffiti, which is my favorite album of theirs. And then, you know, they did some Crow songs, but there was a record label issue why those Crow songs didn't make it on the album. And, you know, it just all stops abruptly. And then they're like, well, what do we do? We don't have really have a record contract. And then that's how they wound up on, was it V2? Or, V2. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, even then... I didn't realize the because I always wondered. They're like, well, they did like one album with them, and the, and then the live album was released through them, and then it kind of fizzled out. They offered them a uh, million dollars an album, for, and uh, for five albums, um, you know, and they it, it seems to me that they they blew that opportunity too, because Chris just one day out of the blue decides I'm going solo. All right, yeah. so Steve addresses that today on that Dean Del Rey. I'm sorry, I keep everybody. Please go listen to that. It's it's a great interview. Let there be talks. The name of the podcast. He talks about how basically they had that deal set up, and they just every like year and a half or two years they had to deliver an album, and, and V2 would give them a million dollars. And he was saying that Chris was like, "No, I want to do a solo album." And he, he just talks about how like once Chris got that in his head, there was like. Hey, this is a sweet gig we got. You know, we just do an album every couple of years. We're going to get a million bucks. And Chris was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm ready to do a solo album. And, uh, you know, there's obviously some frustration there. You, you know, they'd been kind of through that dark time. And then here they got a label that actually was really supporting them and, you know, gave them Don Was to use. And, I mean, Don Was has produced everybody, you know, from the Stones to you name it. And uh, they, they just seemed to, to screw that up. But, they do get Don was as the producer and Don plays some of the bass on it. And then rich plays most of the bass on lines. And, you know, people are going to make jokes because, you know, we, we all know that lines is a very divisive album. You and I kind of feel the same about it. It's not as bad as, uh, it's not Southern harmony, but it's not as bad as everybody makes it out to be. But you sit there and you think if what Gorman said, it went down the way he did, you pass up, that Jimmy Page thing, and these are the songs that he said that you know they had ready to go, which not knocking those songs, but let's take let's take you know a song that everybody knows that I love, Midnight from the Inside Out. You take that and you have Jimmy Page playing a little slide on it somewhere or something like that. I mean, could have added something to that, but I mean this is the album we got, and uh, you know I talked about on that episode after I became just a diehard fan, this was the first release, so I was pumped about it uh, either way, but. Uh, just kind of makes you wonder on some of those songs if Jimmy Page was playing on it. What because Rich played all the guitar parts, so it's not like he'd be stepping on Audley's toes or anything. Basically, Jimmy Page would be your second guitarist. Yeah, and a lot of the the guitar parts on that album 
are influenced by Led Zeppelin type stuff anyway because they had just, you know, uh, and I'm sure very subconsciously, but they had spent so much time around him. So, I mean, it was already kind of themed towards his style anyway, you know. And it, it's funny thing, you know, you mentioned that not to step on Audley's toes. It, it says in the book that Rich was looking to get rid of Audley then. That's why he didn't play on the record really. And it's surprising to me. Like, he just had the guy in. And why would you be looking to get rid of him so quickly? Yeah, he doesn't really expound on that. And honestly, I think he only mentions Audley twice. The day he got hired and the day, he, like, the, I think he just mentioned, like, you know, Audley didn't play on the album. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about Audley. And, you know, maybe that's because he had nothing. But if that's if that's know. true, then that does make sense because Audley played in New Earth Mud. So obviously Chris didn't have a problem with him. And then he played on As the Crow Flies. Um, you know, and so, uh, and Audley was in Trigger Hippie for a while. That's true. So yeah. if, if, you know, Rich didn't enjoy playing with him, it seems that Rich was the outlier because the other, the other guys obviously have. I guess that's, I guess, you know, little subtle things like that, like you pick up on like, oh, he was the one that had a problem with that guy or this one had a problem with that guy. But, you know, uh, and it, along those same lines for years, um, a lot of people viewed Kate Hudson as kind of the the Yoko Ono of uh, of the Black Crows, and, and, and Steve kind of puts that. Yeah, he kind of puts that to bed. She would always, you know, bust his chops for uh, not getting along with his brother, and really tried to make the peace. And she wanted the band to succeed. She know? did, and there's that real awkward kind of story where Chris and uh, Kate get married, and Steve and his wife wind up riding back to the. Uh, the house that they were sharing for Chris and Kate's wedding night. And you got to think if you're Steve Gorman, you're like, yeah, I didn't start playing the drums since I was 21. Uh, we have this huge album. We go and we open for the stones and the grateful dead. And then like, I'm taking naps with Jimmy page. And now, you know, I'm staying at a house with Kate Hudson on her wedding night, who is the biggest it girl going right now. And her parent, her mom and her, for all intents and purposes, her father or like Hollywood royalty. And, uh, you know, he's just, he's got to kind of pinch himself. And but yeah, he mentioned that I've forgotten about that house. He, didn't he say to her, like, you got your hand, your work cut out for you or something like that. And how she would always, you know, really snap into Chris, you know, about not playing well with others. Yeah. I mean, she really kind of, she was trying to maintain the legacy of the black crows. So, you know, all these years later, you know, Tip of the hat to Kate Hudson for uh, giving it uh, an, uh, you know, the good old college try. But uh, well, they and they touch on the uh, at that time frame. They touch on the uh, the uh, brotherly love tour with Oasis, and he confirmed what everybody else has said was that it was one of the best tours they've ever been, and how just well they got along together. I was thinking about that as I'm reading it, and that must have been gigantic for you because uh, you're you're a big. Uh, Oasis fan. I, I appreciate Oasis and I like a lot of their material, but you're very big into them, if I'm not mistaken. They're a top 10 band for me. Uh, maybe top five, depending on the day of the week. But yeah, so I, and I didn't get to see any of those shows. I don't think they came anywhere anywhere near me. And I was in graduate school at that point. I had, didn't have any money anyway, so I probably couldn't <laughs> have gone. But uh, you didn't you didn't see a brotherly love tour uh, I tour show. Now oh, I saw man. I saw Oasis. Right after that, they did a. Um, I went to see them at the Tabernacle in Atlanta when uh, Heathen Chemistry came out. So this would have been right before that came out. Uh, it was a great, a great show. But 
so they go on that tour and they seem to have a lot of fun and then they go on the tour where I know I think I know you and I went to see them on different obviously different places but the uh, tour with Beachwood Sparks opening you saw them on that one right yes and uh you know they have that infamous was it in Boston when they played their final show yeah and it's it's funny to read that cuz I had always heard about um how Steve disappeared before the last encore shaved his head or well, turned back out on the stage with his head shaved and it was kind of a I'd always heard it was like kind of like a middle finger to, to Chris in a way because they were having bad times at that. But really, he was just – he says in the book he was so at peace with his decision to move on that, you know, that that end of that tour, he was like perfectly happy. He had come to terms in his mind that he was no longer going to be the drummer of the Black Crows. And he also said in the book that other members of the band thought it was funny. They yeah. were laughing at him when he came up, which I'd always kind of heard it made him mad, but – I mean, you know, what do I know? Yeah, I mean, maybe his interpretation was different in theirs or something. But so then, so they do that. They play their last show. I think they all think it's over for good. Yeah, I mean, they all go their separate way. He doesn't really, you know, mention what the other guys do other than Chris going, uh, you know, solo. But Chris does the New Earth Mud thing. He kind of, the, the in the book, he kind of paints it with like a, you know, a, a, a brush of failure to it. I don't think... Um, you know, I mean, uh, in Rich's case, Hookah Brown didn't get off the road too much. And Chris's, excuse me, um, Rich's early solo <coughs> stuff was uh, uh, a bit more modest in terms of commercial appeal. But uh, I think New Earth Mud did fairly well. I mean, I remember going to shows and they were full. Yeah, yeah. You know? Especially when, you, when I saw them, it was still Paul Stacy was in the band and, and all mm-hmm. had made it. But he even talks about how he went to see Chris play and he was thinking to himself, wow, he's really happy. And I mean, and that that original New Earth Mud stuff was was great. I mean, I saw them. It had to be like not too far into their first tour here in in uh, in New York City. So they're all, you know, they do their thing. Steve kind of settles into, uh, you know, he plays a little bit with the stereophonics. Uh, he does a lot of session work after he moves to Nashville, and then, uh, you know, somewhere around mid two thousand four, I think uh, he catches wind that they're uh, they're trying to put the band back together. Yeah, and he's originally not part of it, and he confirmed that it was Neil Casal. That um, Neil Neil unfortunately had pretty much talked himself out of that gig because he mentioned somewhere publicly, whether it be a, a print interview or or, or an audio interview, that um, he was going to be a part of the Hammerstein run, the initial run of shows they were they were doing to test the water, and that there was potentially a tour coming. So I think he. Uh, he kind of loose-lipped his way out of that position, and then so Pete calls up, calls up Mark, gets Mark involved, and tells Chris and Rich, Mark's in the band now. Well, you get deal with it, you know. So right, and, that's and, how, that's and how also got Mark. Steve said the first thing that kind of piqued his interest was he heard Sven was back in, and he right. kind of acted like, well, they've got Sven, you know, and obviously uh, Bill is it Debro or Debrow played uh, Debrow, yeah. Just not a good fit. I mean, he, I'm sure he's an accomplished drummer, but of all accounts, you know, he was the the brothers were just really, particularly Chris, were just really giving him a hard time. And it sounds like Pete, if I remember correctly, Pete calls him up and says, "You know, they're coming to Atlanta. What if uh, you just showed up and and played?" And that's pretty much how that went. I remember a couple of days like prior, you know, they kind of got wind of like, "Hey, they're unhappy with Bill, and we think Steve might show up at this show." and 
And ultimately, that's what it was. But they they really lobbied hard behind the scenes to get him back, whether or not they actually realized his value to the band or they realized how much uh, Bill DeBrow was not meeting their needs. Now, Bill Bill was I always thought Bill was a, a competent drummer and uh, he did well with Hookah Brown and he played a lot of Rich's solo dates. And, you know, I always felt bad for Bill DeBrow. Um, his playing suited Rich's solo work nicely and he was a good drummer and it seemed like and and Steve kind of confirmed it that uh you know Chris was like verbally berating him on stage I I had seen a couple of shows and it looked like that to me and I said well that can't be possible that's not pro who would do that on stage well and I think I think Steve did not mention his name in the book out of respect for him yeah because um you know he didn't ask for that and I don't think the guy got the full scope of what it would be like to try to step in for Steve Gorman amongst this uh, rowdy fan base that we're a part of and we've come to know and love over the years. Some of these people, they ain't having it, you know? Were you surprised at kind of how little was spoken in the book about the 0506 tour? I thought it'd, it be, did, I thought it'd be a bigger part of the book because he even said on that podcast today how great those shows were. Yeah, I think maybe that got lost in the editing because I know there was a lot of stuff that they trimmed out but uh, and it's funny he felt he said he felt like uh, after the '06 run he didn't feel like it was his band anymore. You know after Mark Mark left again and he confirms he said Mark had started using again. Which if you think about it, if you if you look at like Freak and Roll if you watch that that fil- that concert DVD and then you look at Mark, you know not much more than a year later. His appearance definitely changed. He definitely looked more, you know, something was up there. But at least Mark had the good sense to to step away, you know, before things got too crazy again. Speaking and of then, that Fillmore run, he told a great story about that today. So he said, you know, he said he thinks they did like five nights. And, you know, obviously it was recorded on, you know, Freaking Roll was one of those nights. He was saying that they were going to leave the next day to fly to Japan. And he said on their final night there, they got through playing, and the crowd was just going so insane. They came out and played an uh, unplanned encore. And they get done, and they're backstage, and the sound guy turns on you know, some music over the PA, and the crowd just will not stop chanting for them. And it goes on and on for like five minutes, so much so that the guy quits playing that music, and I guess he's thinking they're going to come out again. And he said they're all down there, you know, behind the stage. And Mark and, and Rich and Ed and everybody was like, we got to go back out there. Like, this is awesome. You know, this crowd is into it. And Chris goes, no, I'm done. And Steve was just kind of thinking like, this is like a one, like the crowd, they, they won't leave. And they're chanting our name. And we want to go back and said that Rich goes, well, we haven't played Sometimes Salvation in a couple of nights. And Steve said he thought to himself, he said, if we go out there and play Sometimes Salvation, it's going to bring it's, it's going to bring the, the house down. And said so Chris just took his shoes off and was like, I'm done. I'm not going back out there. And, and he said he was just like kicking himself over like there was this potential great moment and we don't get to experience it. You know, it's it's kind of a thing that he brings up over and over again in the book. And it's like it seems like Chris really does a lot of stuff to suit himself. But whereas a lot of, you know, it's it's human nature to try to service your own needs. But he does it at the expense of so many great moments and things and opportunities. Uh, you know, it's just, it's it's mind-boggling sometimes, like, where he gets 
you know, where he's coming from, you know? All right, help me out. I'm getting kind of fuzzy as to kind of how Luther came into the picture. I know he played with Rich in that Circle Sound show, but is is that how Luther came I th- in? I think it is. They don't really – he doesn't really address that too much. However, no. I will – and I've been waiting all week to do this because when I read this, I almost passed out. But, uh, you know, so they were touring – because you had mentioned Paul Stacey and he says what a great guitarist. He thought Paul Stacey wasn't a classy guy and all that and – and then they were also touring with with Rob Cloris at the time, who he said showed up to that gig ready to go, but Chris just didn't like him. Um, and Rob had come from the Circle Sound as well. What it, what really surprises me, and um, if you haven't read the book yet, I don't want to spoil it for you. But if you haven't read the book, I don't know why you're right. tuning into us right now. That's what this is all about. But um, it was Mr. Ed Harsh who saw Adam McDougall play and said, that guy's got it. And Ed Harsh liked Adam McDougall and the way he had to play. So all you folks out there, all your criticism of that, Ed thought that Adam was a great uh, player. So there's something to be said for that. You know what I mean? And they all to a man say that Ed is by far the greatest musician that's ever been in the band. Oh, yeah. But that's – I didn't even know Ed – because that was – I think I, – I don't remember the specific circumstance, but Adam was playing with somebody they all went to see. You know, and Ed – endorsed him right at it, right right then when he was nobody and i had no inkling that he was ever going to be you know his replacement in the band or anything like that but so there you go is is adam mcdougall the most divisive member of the black crows yes absolutely and let, let me go on record as saying this i don't know where you stand there are times when i didn't particularly care for his playing most of the stuff I don't care for he does is with the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, though. In the Black Crows, I always thought he approached it that the best way he possibly could was to play – was to – in most instances – I mean certain ones you can't avoid. But in a lot – most instances played it nothing like Ed because he did not want to be compared to Ed. And, and why would you? Ed is Ed. Is Ed. Well, and Matt you know Slocum I mean? told us how big of a – how much pressure that was whenever he would have to play those Ed parts. Yeah, and and Matt said he did it as faithfully to Ed as he could with his own style, and I think that's what ultimately what Adam did. He just put, he just went a little bit more to the right with it. I mean, I give him credit for trying, and I don't think the guy's a bad player. And uh, no, he's 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 highly respected, and uh, when you go see him with the CRB, or if you did go see him with the CRB, he was kind of like a mad scientist back there. Honestly, he was kind of like the Edge in you too. Was he had all these crazy effects going and stuff and you know experimented i mean i know i've i've been prone to give him some grief from time to time because of wiser time and you know descending but like you said that's like replacing Derek jeter at shortstop for the yankees nobody's gonna nobody's gonna be able to to do that perfectly but do you think that i mean how many times we should look it up on crow's base uh you know how many times they played wiser time and you know i always saw the the breakdown section and what Adam did in it was just another one of the ways they tried to keep that interesting amongst themselves. You know, just go really out there with it, you know. Because a lot of those jams with it, with Adam involved in them, they all were getting kind of experimental with their, their part of the solo section. So, you know. Can I, can I state an unpopular Black Crow's opinion I have? Certainly can. The jam for Wiser Time gets old to me. Sometimes I would like to see them just play that one straight through. It, to me, it was always a very fine line with that. There's a fine line between an appropriate amount of time to jam with it, and then it goes off 
and then all of a sudden it becomes a little less interesting. See, I'm not a big fan of always jamming the same song. You know, like I think it would have been perfectly fine sometimes to see my morning song and just play it like it is off the album. But, yeah. I, but I, then I like it when they would do things like with Mark, they would jam a little bit that intro to Soul Singing, Cypress Tree. You know, it's just, it's it was all, it got to be kind of frustrating like when you go see Wiser Time, well, you know this is 15 minutes, one way or the other. Yeah, there was, and I, they kind of did with Soul Singing, like for a bit they did uh, like a, a jam breakdown in the middle, and then they did away with that and just played it straightforward and yeah, I, I kind of I, I would agree with you. It's, it would seem like it would be more it would be more interesting, you know. They start playing it and the crowd's going, well, "Which one am I getting tonight? Am I getting the standard or am I getting right. the jam? What's going to happen?" You know. Right. I'd like to see them try to jam something like "Sometimes Salvation" or uh, uh, "Hotel Illness." I think you could do a lot with Chris on the harmonica on that one. But anyway, I digress. But yeah, so uh, Luther comes in the band. He compliments Luther uh, being a good fit for him at the time. They were. They record the War Paint album, which it's my least favorite of all the studio albums. But I know I think you feel a little bit differently than I do on that. I like the record. Um, it's definitely not my least favorite. Definitely not my most favorite. Um, that episode's coming, folks. We're going to rank our albums yeah. here soon. Yeah don't, yeah, don't you worry. You'll find out what <laughs> we think. As if we haven't told you. But um, yeah, it sounds to me like there's a lot of tension during that album, though. Yeah. And I, th- and I think it was really interesting because on it and really on Before the Frost, you can basically see the tension play out with the songwriting. Chris wanted to go more in that folk, freak folk type format, almost singer-songwriter. And, you know, Rich, as stated throughout that book, really wanted to go toward more toward the rock stuff. So on War Paint, you have stuff like uh, Woe Mule and... Um, there's gold in them hills or whatever. The song's so bad, I don't even know the title of it. You know, versus <laughs> versus like Wounded Bird and Goodbye Daughters of the Revolution and Walk Believer Walk. And for, I, I've stated this before, Luther was the perfect fit for that time because he could really bring his talents together, especially on the stuff that I think Chris was really going toward. You know, whether it be the slide guitar or a mandolin or a banjo or whatever it was that, you know, he can play anything with strings on it. And uh, but at the same time, Rich really respected his guitar playing, obviously, and really let Luther shine on some of those solos. So, uh, Wounded Bird is a is a great example of you know Rich Rich's songwriting winning out on that one. But uh, I thought Luther did a really good job on all the studio material that that he recorded with the Crows. Yeah, I mean Luther showed up and brought his his A game, as they say, and and really. I, I like his contributions to the band, and, and no one's ever going to be able to really tell me otherwise. But um, were you surprised at how glossed over all of this was in the book, like especially the cabin fever sessions? Because you know, when we have Steve on, those cabin fever, fever sessions are one of the things I kind of want to find out more about. Like, how truly, like, did they go back in and record some stuff that wasn't in front of people and? Did they show up with all those songs and they hammered them out there? Did they all write them while they were there? And you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to me that it's not addressed more in the book because you know he makes mention of you know all the Jimmy Page stuff and obviously that's huge, but you know the Cabin Fever they were working with Levon Hill. I mean, how great is right. that? At you his know, at uh, his barn and really that that was a very original concept for all the the bad press they get for making bad. M- business decisions they made some that were cutting edge like the downloading the 
the live at the Greek album, you know, they had that uh, by the show by the crows get the shows uh, on the Lions tour, and then this yeah. whole thing with Cabin Fever. I remember there were all these like rumors that they were about to do something really kind of cool and revolutionary, and I mean nobody's ever done that before except maybe. I mean, Neil Young on Time Fades Away, a lot of that stuff I don't think people had heard. But they they do that and say, we're going to let you come be a part of it, you know, for like four weekends in a row. And there was so much talk about those sessions. And there was people that I think that first night somebody was able to record some of it. And then, you know, I remember hearing Little Lizzie, Little Lizzie May. This was the one that everybody's like, you got to listen to it. It's great. And, you know, it didn't make the album, but it made cabin fever and it was the first time they played oh sweet nothing that i'm aware of the first time i remember seeing chris with a guitar and so i mean those sessions were really big and and i know the people that got to go see them you know really liked them it was very communal and everything but that's glossed over in the book and it is that that latter period is kind of truncated in the book and kind of gone through very quickly the only thing they seem to really focus on in that later period is when uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Stan Robinson passed away, and I thought that was a really, really tender moment. And I may be putting words in Steve's mouth, but it seems like on that day and those days afterwards, the last time he and Chris had any kind of type of connection. Yeah, and it's really you know, I was reading that, and I was, it's very touching because you, it, Chris, almost has a, a real, real human vulnerability at that moment, and then, you know. Then it's gone. Well, he acts like, you know, in a couple of days, it's like he's a totally different person. And like we said, this is all coming from Steve's perspective. And, you know, if Chris would ever come on here, we would would listen to his perspective. But, yeah, that was a that was one of the saddest moments, I think, of the of the whole book. Yes, I I, I agree with you 100 percent. That's that was my next uh, sentence. It's that's heartbreaking. And uh, I actually went and downloaded. I haven't had an opportunity to listen to it, but. The show that they said they did the next night in uh, in in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and by the way, Steve accounts for it in the book. To me, it seems like that it was the actual last Black Crow show. I mean, I know they finished up at the end of December, but that sh- that in September seemed like the you know their last show, kind of like a tribute to their dad, because Steve mentions that. You know, Chris changes his tune after that, and the rest of the tour was kind of a a misery in a lot of ways. You know, so have you heard that there's some bad blood between Jackie Green and Steve? No, I mean it wouldn't be surprising because he he kind of abruptly left Trigger Hippie. You know, yeah, I, I, I've heard that as well. And he, you know, uh, on that podcast day, Dean Delray point blank tells him he said the tour with Jackie was the worst. And Steve didn't really say anything. And he talked about how, like, you know, he tried to make Trigger Hippie a big thing. And there were some people that just weren't going to let that happen. And so I've always heard that Jackie kind of bailed on him. So, um, I mean, I saw them only one show on that tour. And it was the worst Black Crow show I've ever seen. Yeah. See, now, to be perfectly honest, I I don't fault Jackie as much as the overall situation uh, because i don't think jackie had an adequate amount of time to learn the uh, the catalog no no i don't and, and i think jackie brought some great backing backing vocals to the band for sure mm-hmm. you know th- those set lists to me got kind of stale it seemed like they fell in love with hush and mm-hmm. jump and jumping jack flash 
uh, a lot as covers, and uh, I just I don't like it when they get in a rut of. You know, it's so cool, you know, hey, you know, they break out something like Torn and Freight or Big Time. But, you know, when you're seeing Hush and Jumpin' Jack Flash 10 and 12 times on a tour, it tells me they're phoning it in. Yeah, it did become a little uh, a little more static. The thing that always caught me about that, because I, um, you know me, the, the nerd that I can be sometimes. I make my own compilations of things, and I was going through trying to make like a little... 2013 tour sampler just to give it a listen and i noticed a lot of the things when i was listening is that the things that jackie didn't play you know you'd be listening to a song looking for oh there's a a kind of a guitar fill that goes here not necessarily copying mark's exact playing or whoever but it was just nothing there was a lot of empty spaces and that's why i got the impression that maybe he didn't he wasn't familiarized enough with the songs to really start making his mark on him, you know, and I, I, it was almost a disservice to his playing really. Yeah. I, I, I think they definitely could have made it work and, and made it be better. But like you said, I don't think he got a chance to really put his own spin on those tunes. But like I said, I love his backing vocals on that. And as you were talking, I'm pulling up that, uh, that Birmingham show. And I have a question for you about it. Did they Absolutely. really play low down? Yeah, I noticed that too. And that's, that's interesting. And, uh, yeah, they played Hush on that one. Uh, Wold Mule made that set. Uh-oh. Uh, Lucifer Sound makes a comeback on that one. So, interesting. Um, yeah, I'm going to download it when we get through doing the podcast. But So that, basically, what Chris, I mean, what Steve says is that, sh- that whole tour was kind of a dry run for doing a 25th anniversary of Shake Your Moneymaker. And he says that would that would be the great way to go out. And like he said today on that podcast, he said if, if I was always thinking about the final night and I would walk up to Chris and shake his hand and walk up to Rich and shake his hand and, you know, hug Pete and Amy and be like, we, you know, we stuck with this, we overcame, and this is a great way to end it. But uh, by all accounts, they were planning on doing that and they get an email and Steve's like, you know, I've got the email and can show everybody where he wanted all of Steve's part and then most of Rich's part where he would get 75% of the band and both um, he said the email that was sent back was saying that Rich and Steve reject his terms and that was it yeah it says uh, our rejection was non-negotiable as were their terms they demanded an answer and they got one game over and you know that's essentially how the Black Crows how died. the book ends and that's how the book ends here and uh, you know it's funny uh, Steve the, the last, the little epilogue section is referred to as uh, as the headstone, and he opens it with a quote from uh, somebody I've uh, I, whose work has meant a lot to me in my lifetime, uh, uh, certainly, and uh, that's uh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, and he says, uh, "No sympathy for the devil. Keep that in mind. Buy the ticket, take the ride." And Steve says, "You know, later on, that's exactly what he did." He bought the ticket. He took the ride. He knew what he was getting into. He said, I bought the ticket. I took the ride. I'm not a victim, and I wasn't wronged. And it's a nice way to to, to really come to, to wind down the book because he's saying, although he presents these things in a certain way, he's not portraying himself as like, oh, poor me. I had to do this. He's like, I knew what I was getting into. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I signed up for every time, but I took that ride. It's, it's, it's sad. And then he comes out with the epitaph being uh, – here lies the Black Crows, a once great band that parted the sea to find glory beyond their reach. And that's, I, I, couldn't, I can't think of a better uh, 
epitaph for that band if if that was to be it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just uh, it's just sad that like as fans we didn't get the proper goodbye. Um, you know, yeah. I, I would have liked to. What I would have liked to have seen them do is do that tour and then on that last tour do a residency at the Fillmore or New York or even they could do a residency at like the Fox Theater in Atlanta. That would probably be more appropriate and do um, one of those residencies where they play an album through, do four nights, play the four classic albums all the way through and then call it a day. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of missed opportunity there. They could have really put something together um, for the sake of the, the fans that stuck by them. You know, and really, you know, and and in all actuality, the fans that stuck by them. I mean, you're one of those people. I'm one of those people. There's people that have been following them, you know, even longer than we have. And um, you know, you know, each and every one of those people kind of deserves something. And um, when he says that, and he he seems to be so grateful to the fans. You know, he mentions, you know, we never did, we didn't do the fans right by giving them. You know, he's like, there's people that have seen us a hundred times, and he's like. He was saying on that podcast today, he said that, that he was on his radio tour and he's in New York and this guy came up to him that works for the radio and he goes, man, I've seen you 54 times. And he said, I thought to myself, like, think of everything that went into that guy seeing us 54 times. First of all, there's a financial commitment. And he said, this guy probably has a normal life. So he had to get people to you know babysit his children. He had to get travel, lodging, food, all that went into that. And he's like, you know, he said, I told the guy, he said, thank you. And he said, I mean that. And he said, if you've only seen us three times and you come away going, those are the three best concerts I've ever seen, you know, thank you. And he just seems to be so appreciative of the fans. And he seems to be in such a good place. Now, he talked about in this interview, he started going to therapy in 2016 and how everything has made sense. And he is, he seems to be, if he's lying, he's a great actor at complete peace with how this went down. You know, is now it is what it is, and um, he seems really happy. And you know, financially, he, I don't think he's in a place where he needs to go out on tour. Uh, you know, he's this radio show is you know, I'm, I'm sure a sweet gig. And he's talked about how much fun he's having doing that. And then he acts like Trigger Hippie's a for real band and is going to be a band going forward, which makes me really happy. And they're a band I think that could really catch on, especially like in the festival. They're a great festival band, like. You could go to a show and see them and not know anything about them, but they would draw you in and, and you would yeah. listen to them. And so he just seems in a great place. And, you know, obviously, like we said, he's told us he wants to come on here. So we're going to that's going to happen and um, really look forward to picking his brain on not really the personal stuff. I think, Ian and I, and, and I think most of you out there kind of want to hear more about like some of the sessions and the Daniel Lenoir sessions and then, you know, some of these rumors that we've always heard about some of the songs and recording sessions and stuff. So, um, he seems to be in a good place and that, that makes me happy. And, you know, like I'm sure we would tell him when we have him on here. I mean, to me, he's as big of a part of the black crows as anybody. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's an integral part of that band. Just as I would say he, to that band, he is just as important as Chris and Rich Robinson. And sadly from, going through you know however many pages are in this book it seems like they never fully got a grasp on that and uh no and you know, he, he reminds me a lot of uh, david ellison from megadeth um i've read both of his books and dave mustaine's book and i've interviewed dave before and he talks about how he's now kind of the face of he's always been the kind of the the peacemaker in megadeth obviously dave mustaine is a very strong personality 
how he was the one that was always having to try to keep the peace. And he took it upon himself, you know, to keep peace. And he talks about like Megadeth's been a revolving door of musicians. And he's like, I'm still friends with all of them and still keep up with them. And I feel like Steve took on that role. Like I'm the one that's going to have to bring all this together. You know, you have the brothers and me, and then you have Johnny Colt and, you know, I'm going to help Johnny out. I'm going to help Mark out. It seemed like he was really dedicated to helping all those guys. There's always one guy in every band. That's like the fan connection. And I really think that, that's Steve and he ultimately has it seems like any decision that he made or anything it was always influenced by what would be the best thing for the fans and you know I will always appreciate that and hopefully yes I mean like you said I, you know we'll stay away from the personal stuff and we'll get into some of the uh, the more uh, Black Crows nerd based questions that uh, everyone's has a burning desire and you know as a matter of fact um, if anybody out there wants to uh you know, send us an email with something that they've been dying to know that they think Steve could answer for them. Uh, State of America at gmail.com. You know, feel free to send oh, and, it to us thank there. You, thank you for everybody that sends, these, sends us these emails. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. We've gotten four or five good ones in the last couple of days. Um, some of you send us these really long emails. It's really cool to hear your stories and hear what the, how you got into the crows and like some of the cool moments that some of you've gotten to experience and see. And some of you said you want to come on the podcast. And so like, I, I, I try to respond to all of them and tell mm-hmm. you, we'll keep you in mind. We've got so many people that want to come on. This is going to take years to, uh, accommodate that, but we definitely have you on the list. And, uh, like, uh, Ian said, if when we get, we'll announce probably a week or so out when we're going to do the Gorman interview, and you guys can send us questions, and we'll maybe pick one or two of them to ask him when he comes on. And uh, I'm, you know, he's really busy right now. And he, he told me that in the message with uh, all the stuff going on. But he, you know, he definitely said, uh, "I want to come on the show, and let's just let things calm down." He said, "Read the book, and let's let clearly uh, we have yeah, so. <laughs> let's let some of the trigger hippie stuff, uh, you know, die down and let him get uh, acclimated to his new job." But so we're, I'll reach out to him in the next week or so and try to set that up. But Ian, this has been a lot of fun. It has, and I do want to echo the sentiment you just uh, made. I do appreciate anybody that sends an email, a message through SoundCloud or Facebook or or any of the various, you know, um, I mean, I handle primarily the Facebook and, and, and David's, you know, handling the other stuff. But if, you know, if I get something, I show it immediately to David and vice versa. We do read every single thing you send us. Um, it may not be right away, and sometimes it may take us a little bit to respond, but uh, we do read it and appreciate it. And and thank you all for uh, joining us on this ride that's hopefully going to carry on for quite some time. Yeah, we're just getting started. We're coming up with new ideas every week. We've already got probably the next four or five shows planned. So. Yeah, it's great. We we have so many ideas at this point. Sometimes we go, oh, oh, we forgot. Remember we came up with this one? You know? <laughs> so, but uh, So we're going to... Um, you know, David picked our um, outro music last week, the fabulous exit, and so he left it up to me to make the selection for this week. So I thought it would be nice to to end this one on a uh, a really nice live version from the Fillmore run that we mentioned earlier in the episode. This is uh, Lay It All on Me. So thanks for listening and stay tall.
Sky, hello blue. There's nothing can hold me when I hold you. It feels so right, it can't be wrong. Rocking and rolling. 